0: I pray that you would help us to remember these things and to love you more and more every day, Lord, and to uh, reflect deeply about the significance of what your death on the cross meant uh, for us and for the world in general, Lord. I uh, pray that you would help us to understand great things from your word and protect us from error. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Well, one of the disadvantages of trying to prepare a bit ahead of time is that sometimes when you get to... Studying and trying to put together a lesson of some sort, you you realize that what you're putting together didn't fit what you originally planned, and so uh, there may be a, a slight disconnect in your bulletin and what you find inside your uh, handout. But uh, that's okay. There's no no problem there. We will just uh, go with uh, go with what we have done here. And try to think about this passage in general. I, I originally planned on doing John nineteen sixteen through twenty two, and then I decided that I was only going to do the first two verses. And and really, there's only one point that I'm going to be making from this passage uh, today, with three different uh, implications of that point. So I know that that may come as a bit of a shock to you that we would only attempt to do one point in a message. Uh, I, I imagine you wonder is that even possible for those guys to to do one point, uh, but um, uh, we will see. We will see what happens here. Uh, I, I will say that I I have grown up in a time of massive societal change. I know that probably everyone exp- uh, feels that way to some degree, um, but I, I'm and I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. I, I am technically, uh, the first class of millennials, and so um, that is a source of great shame for me in certain ways, Uh, but it is true, and I will say that I I did grow up in a time of significant transition, and I wonder, with things progressing at the pace in which they seem to be progressing, uh, what the next generation Uh, is going to, what what sort of transitions they're going to be undergoing as they uh, move forward in general. Uh, But I I will say that growing up, we still had a tendency to say, uh, though it was going out of fashion a bit at at the time, and not just because of uh, changes in our perspective on these sorts of things, but we, we did have a propensity to say growing up that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words Will never hurt me, and I don't know that I've heard anyone say that in any recent, uh, in, in any sort of recent example. But that's the kind of thing that we used to say because we did uh, realize, to some degree, that uh, that really, when you choose to be offended at the kind of things that people say, and in a certain sense, what you're doing is you're giving. Them significant power over you. You're you're letting your emotions and your perspective and your thoughts and and what's going on mentally be controlled from the outside by other people. And, and so there, there's um, there's something that I learned from an early age. I learned uh, some sort of toughness there, uh, some sort of thick skin. Uh, I would say that naturally I'm probably a people pleaser, but but it's the kind of thing that I I understood was an objective to pursue. I understood an objective to pursue was. Uh, to try to not let the words and the actions of other people totally dominate my entire experience, and 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 feel as if I was uh, victimized by the things that other people would say or not say, or find myself emotionally dependent on these sorts of things. And so I would say that we, that was the kind of thing that you you know you learned growing up. But you you. you you learn to be a man. Uh, I would say I learned to be a man. Uh, don't let other people affect me uh, in that kind of way to be in charge of my emotions and what's going on. And so I, I think those are some of the things that I was taught very early. But then, you know, as you go to school and you attend uh, attend university and you look around the world, one of the things that was changing as far as that kind of perspective was concerned was you, you start to realize that, hey, um, you know sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me that's uh that there's certainly some kind of truth there but then you know words can be unpleasant at times and words can be uh rude and i mean if you think in terms of biblical passages which no one's really talking about at that point but if you think in terms of some biblical passages you do realize that life and death is in the power of the tongue and the things that we say matter and 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 we can uh say things that um you know, at times we can't really take back, and we have to be reflective on the kind of things that we say, and and the kind of things that we say. Uh, you know, if we're loose with our tongue, can can often destroy relationships and and really mess things up. And so I, I would say that in certain, in a certain sense, I I grew up in a time of trans, transition to where, you know, perhaps at during my younger years, um, we we tried to take a lot more responsibility for our reactions to the words that other people were saying. And then later on in life, what I realized is society around me and there's you know influences and temptations to, on uh, my own part, just to feel entirely victimized by the words and the actions of others. And I would say that there's some kind of truth in both of those things, but then I, I know that uh, the right path is, is not to go to one extreme. And, and certainly... Wherever we are now as a society, we are on the complete opposite extreme uh, of where I uh, grew up. And so I would say that, that that is one of the most significant changes that I've seen. I mean, I, I think you, you aptly describe uh, the next generation as the snowflake generation for a reason. Is because we have gone the complete opposite other ways, and maybe there's things that we've learned, but then we've emphasized those uh, those truths to the point where we we feel totally uh, victimized by the words and the thoughts of other people to such an extent that you can you can listen to um, just many of the re- recent societal debates even and you can shake your head in confusion when you when you see adult men who I mean grown up adult men who can't conceive of what to do, when other people say something that they don't like and they feel as if when someone says something you don't like that you either have to have uh, be physically violent with them or somehow compel the the government to shut them up you know and we're we're at a strange point in history where that sort of thing makes sense to people and and people say that kind of thing in public and on TV in front of everyone and so we're we're i think we're so far to the other end of things now that it's it's a bit strange. Now, in this kind of um, in this kind of situation, there is a very strange. I mean, if you think about it, step back for a minute and just think about Western civilization and, and think about the uh, tendencies we have. There is a strange tendency in Western societies to uh, weaponize victimization. So, I'll say it again: there is a strange tendency in Western societies to weaponize uh, victimization or or use victims as uh, weapons or to present yourself as a victim in order to gain power and control over other people. You can see this in the news. You can see this in your relationships. Uh, If you want to control people, what do you do? You claim victimization. Uh, That's what you do. You tell people, if you want to control people, how do you do it? It's very simple to control people. All you do is you tell them that uh, what they said was insensitive, that they hurt your feelings. And, uh, and you demand that they apologize for that and that they make um, restitution for that. And you will hold that over your head as long as you have to in order to get what you want. And so it's a tactic that I've seen work in countless marriages. It's a tactic that I've seen that is uh, overwhelmingly presented as, uh, in, in our society. You see that there are many people uh, who, whose entire livelihood depends on uh, the cultivation and creation of certain victim classes of individuals. And, and, and their whole livelihood rests on keeping these uh, victims in their state of victimization and using them for, for political purposes or tools... And it's a very strange thing when you think about it. I mean, it really is. It's an odd thing to think about because it's the kind of thing that really only makes sense in the type of society that really uh, has, I would say, achieved a certain level of civilization such that we ha- we don't really have anything better to do uh, than to… Uh, than to control other people and, and, and use victimization as if it's almost a virtue or a saintly status that we bestow on people. I mean, if you think about um, what happens when a society collapses in general, uh, when government goes, what happens? One of the things that realize what we realize when government when governments fall, and you can watch countless movies or read countless books that pick up on the scene. But when 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 government falls what happens? We see what people are made of, don't we? We see what's in the heart of man, and and what's in the heart of man is not good, right? Uh, So when you think about what's necessary to survive in a kind of society where you don't have massive governmental restraint that is imposed upon people, one of the things you realize is that what it takes to survive is a certain level of toughness and not weakness, right? Uh, If you... You know, Pastor Kevin was mentioning Goliath uh, today in uh, the Sunday school lesson, the small group lesson. But one of the things you realize is if Goliath is standing there and he's mocking you and he's mocking your tribe of people. And you're the kind of person who is cuddling your mother and whining about the mean insults that he is uh, speaking to you. If you're that kind of man who, who you... Your only impulse in that kind of moment is to cry and to whine about what's being communicated there. Uh, you, don't be surprised if your side loses that fight, right? Uh, but then we're at a point in society now where largely we have a veil of civilization, and I would say it's a, you know it's a carefully cultivated. Um, Facade that we're putting on, uh, considering all the babies that we murder every year and rip from their mother's womb. Uh, but we, we do have a, uh, we, we do like to present ourselves as civilized, and in, in presenting ourselves as civilized, we almost conceive of being a victim as some sort of virtue, uh, when really, in terms of real life experience, there really it isn't the kind of thing that helps a society move forward at all. It's the kind of thing that you know you really if you if you want to see great deeds done, you have to have a certain uh, level of toughness but but in this kind of in light of all of this, I would say that when you think about the kind of passage that we are going to study today and you think about the example of Jesus dying on the cross, uh, one of the things that ought to stand out to us in a in a very um, stark way. What ought to stand out to us is the fact that there really is—and this is the only point I'm going to have at this sermon—there uh, really is only one true victim in the in in the full sense of the word that that has ever lived in the history of the world. There's only one true victim who has ever lived, and that's Jesus. So the text says, John nineteen sixteen. So he he that is Pilate delivered. Him over to them, who are them, that, that's the soldiers, you'll see that in verse 23. He delivered them, him over to them, the soldiers, to be crucified, so they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called uh, Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus standing in between. And so when you think about what's happening in this passage, you see Jesus being taken to a place of execution. Now, whether or not the place of the skull refers to uh, this location uh, being identified as a a typical site of execution or whether there's a skull-shaped hill that this is making reference to, I think, uh, who knows? The tourism business in Jerusalem probably knows, but uh, we'll leave it at that. But um, uh, when you when you when you see what what you see in this passage is a picture of, of an innocent man, in every sense of the word, a completely and totally innocent man being crucified and put to death uh, next to two scoundrels. And what we ought to do as we ought to think about this passage is we ought to observe the contrast and think about that kind of contrast, Uh, not only between Jesus and the people who he's being killed next to and alongside of, but the contrast between Jesus and us and the contrast between Jesus and our society at large. And so when we think about the murder of Jesus, what we find is the murder of Jesus is the first completely innocent murdered person. Jesus is the first completely innocent murdered person in history. Now, uh, when you think about an issue like murder, I, I think murder is the kind of issue that operates on a spectrum. Uh, it, it ought to be obvious and apparent after even a moment's reflection that all not all murders are created equal. So, you know, you, you can lump them under the same kind of category with the same kind of heading, uh, but there's a, you know, a vast... Uh, spectrum of differences between um, different types of murders, the motivations, the people involved, the situations involved, uh, while still retaining the same uh, basic uh, moral problem. And so I think if we, if we think about the issue of murder for even a few seconds, we will intuitively understand that a murder involving a serial killer, kidnapping, and murdering a young child is, in some sense, very different from a wife pulling the trigger in response to finding her husband in bed with another woman. So uh, even our our legal code makes, you know, with all of its problems, even our legal code makes distinctions between first-degree murder, second-degree murder, voluntary manslaughter. Uh, Similarly, when a teenager is killed after sneaking out of the house late at night, And going to a dangerous area of town, an area his parents warned him to stay away from, particularly at night. We ought to be able to understand, if we are not emotionally reacting to the situation, we ought to be able to understand that the rebellious teenager bears some sort of responsibility For the tragic outcome, while at the same time acknowledging that traveling to a particular location at a particular time does not justify being killed. And so you think about these kind of situations and we can multiply example after example after example of different types of murders, all which have different wrinkles on them. So, as I've said, making these sorts of distinctions is never an attempt to justify murder Murder is never justified. Uh, it is just to say that, that murders are not all the same and that sinful people contribute to their murders in a variety of ways. So some murders are premeditated, some are reactionary, some come in response to no provocation, others re- come in response to extreme forms of provocation. Uh, some murders happen in direct response to sinful and or foolish choices, and others happen in response to righteous choices, and actions. And so we can multiply example after example to to point to this basic reality. So, in other words, while murder is never justified, we can conceive of a variety of situations in which the person murdered is more, uh, if you want to put it this way, he's more innocent in regards to his own murder than others. Thus, the husband who was murdered in reaction to his adultery is... Clearly not a completely innocent person whose actions had nothing whatever to do with his death, right? So when you think about that kind of situation, whatever you say about the man, uh, he clearly contributed to the outcome in some way. Uh, we ought to be able to say that without justifying the, the action. His, uh, he greatly sinned against his wife, and she greatly sinned against him in response. Uh, in the case where the serial killer targets the random child, uh, I was I would say on the spectrum Of innocence, this is about as uh, close a person can get to the ideal or the concept of pure innocence. Uh, It's difficult to conceive of how the random child could have provoked the serial killer in in any way, uh, particularly related to the fact that this is just some random encounter that I'm uh, hypothesizing. Yet despite this basic fact, I think we do understand as Christians... That we come into the world as sinners and the penalty for sin is death. And thus our deaths, however they come, are never completely innocent. In some sense, when we die, no matter how that death comes about, we are simply getting what we deserve. This is the message of the Bible from cover to cover. When we die, no matter how that death comes about, we are simply getting what we deserved. Uh, we come into the world as sinners and God has a law that we have violated. We come into the world as death row inmates uh, whose actions are deserving of death. And so while on a human level, it's never that doesn't ever justify taking the uh, life of another person, we do realize personally and individually that when we die, God is doing us no wrong. So, when you think about these kinds of situations, we ought to ask a few questions. Was the murdered adulterous husband a victim or a villain? Which one was he? Both, isn't he? He's a victim and, 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 and a villain at the same time. Was the random child who was killed by the serial killer a victim or a villain? We, no one wants to say it quite quite as loud, but uh, the answer is both in that case as well, isn't it? And if it's not, I don't know what Bible we're reading. Now, does that mean that all sins are the same and that when we think about sin, we ought to level sin and uh, consider all of our actions functionally uh, the, the same in their horizontal consequences and their effects on society? No, it's just to say that when we uh, sin against a holy God, one of the things to realize is that any sin against a holy God is is infinite in its uh, nature of transgression. And so from God's perspective, our sins against him warrant death. Now, when we reflect on the murder of Jesus, we ought to realize that Jesus is the first completely innocent uh, murdered person in history. So you think about Jesus, you think about his murder, you think about his death. He's the first completely innocent Uh, murdered person in in history. There is no sense in which Jesus got what he deserved. There is no sense in which Jesus sinfully provoked his accusers or died as a result of foolish or unwise choices. All of Jesus's actions are perfect. None of his family or friends who observed his murder had any justifiable reason to second guess his uh, decisions. Or assign any level of blame for any of his actions which led up to his murder. He is completely and totally innocent of his murder. And in no sense did Jesus, uh, you know, from a human perspective, from a divine perspective, in no sense did Jesus deserve to die at all. Now why is it important to recognize this? Why is it important to say this? Why is it important to elaborate on this? Well, in order to be saved... A person must come to understand the scandal of the cross. So let me say that again. In order to be saved, a person must come to understand the scandal of the cross. When we reflect on the cross, when we think about the cross, when we think about what happened to Jesus, in order to be saved, we have to see ourselves as guilty before a holy God. We have to see ourselves as being deserving of death. We have to identify with Adam and Eve in their fallen state, we have to understand that apart from the grace of God, there is truly no hope for us. Uh, those who've been forgiven much, love much. So when we think about uh, the the scandal of the cross, we, you know, we have to reflect. On the nature of the tragedy it is for a man such as Jesus, a God man who's come to live among us and to dwell among us to be put to death by sinful men, men like you and me, men and women just like you and I, when you think about what had happened to jesus, you have to you have to in some sense understand intuitively that what happened to him as horrendous as it as it was, was completely undeserved, completely unjustified. Uh, But you also, the flip side of that, have to see yourself as, as being a death row inmate who has no hope of securing eternal life on your own. And if you don 't think of yourself that way, if you think of yourself as a person who 's basically good and you make comparisons on a, on a horizontal or human level, and you you, you look to uh, to to someone else, you say, "Well, you know I know that i 'm a bad person, and I know that I do bad things, I know that uh, my actions are are not perfect, and we all make mistakes and everything else, but then uh, secretly or maybe even openly at times, you look to your brother or sister or Uh, Your neighbor or your friend, you say, but at least I'm not quite as bad as that guy. Well, as long as that's your stance as it relates to uh, uh, God's perspective of you, as long as your stance of how you view other people is reflected as to how you think that God should view you as well, you're not going to be the kind of person who is going to appreciate grace. You're not going to be the kind of person who is desperate for forgiveness. Uh, You will be the kind of person who is tempted to lean on your own righteousness as a means of justifying yourself before a holy God. And and one day you may find that your righteousness wasn't as good as you thought it would be. And so it's important as we think about the death of Jesus on the cross, and we think about the murder of Jesus, it is important to realize the the scandal of the cross, and to realize that in some very real and fundamental sense, there is nothing that happened to Jesus that was deserved. And yet, uh, we, being sinful humans the way that we are, everything that we receive is mercy from God. You have to look at your life and you have to say that, uh, that I ought to, all the time I get is grace from Him. Uh, I, I, I have committed crimes against God that are worthy of death. And whatever time he gives me is grace. Uh, And if you don't see yourself that way, then you're going to have a hard time understanding what the cross was all about. So the first thing we want to say here as we reflect on the murder of Jesus, we ought to be able to realize that in order to be saved, a person must come to understand the scandal of the cross. Now, uh, secondly, in order to be spiritually stable... Uh, live lives that honor the Lord and have healthy relationships. A person must reject the pervasive uh, victimology, which currently so characterizes uh, Western society. So I'll say that again, and then we'll try to deal with those elements uh, each in turn. In order to be spiritually stable, live lives that honor the Lord, have healthy relationships. A person must reject uh, the pervasive victimology, which currently characterizes Western societies. Uh, And I I say currently characterizes Western societies. because who knows what's next? I mean, my goodness. Or who knows how long uh, Western civilization is is going to last. Uh, We are currently at war with uh, Western civilization and all of its artifacts. But uh, let's deal with the first one first. In order to be spiritually stable, a person must reject uh, the pervasive uh, victimology which currently characterizes Western societies. Why do I say that? I always say that in order to be spiritually stable, you must reject um, the pervasive victimology which characterizes our society. Look, live in the world to any length of time, what happens? What do you realize? Bad stuff happens, right? You can write a book uh, like Rabbi Kushner did. uh, Why uh, do bad things happen to good people? Uh, But in doing so, you kind of miss the point, don't you? Uh, you, you know, you ought to change the title to "Why do good things happen to bad people?" And then you might be on the on the right track, uh, and you may understand the world a bit better, and maybe you might be a bit more stable in general. But uh, when you think about this uh, this the, this question, in order to be spiritually stable, a person must reject the uh, pervasive victimology which characterizes Western societies. Uh, think about it. Bad stuff happens all the time, and pleasant things happen all the time. If you interact with people to any length of time. What are you going to realize? They do things you don't like, don't they? All the time, daily, sometimes the same thing over and over and over again, every day. Uh, You know, if you think about your close relationships with people, how often do you have the same kind of conflict, same kind of fight, fights over and over and over again, all day, every day? I'm speaking in terms of hyperbole, but sometimes it feels that way. Uh, The point there is just to say you live live in the world. any length of time and one of the things that you're going to realize is that you have problems people have problems other people do things you don't like you can't control everyone can you i mean you know despite our best best efforts we can't get the government to come come along and Shut everyone up who says everything that uh, we don't like. I mean, only certain class of individuals get that kind of privileges here. Uh, but he, the issue is that we can't do that. Like, by and large, you have to learn to deal with the fact that people say mean things and do mean things. Uh, and not only the fact that other people say mean things and do mean things, but that you say mean things and do mean things. But that's only talking about relationships, isn't it? I mean, you live in the world to any length of time. What do you realize? That you, you don't just have like threats to peace from other people and from yourself. You can't just seem to get your stuff together and and act right. I mean, it's not just threats from other people. You you live in a world uh, that is hell-bent on killing you, right? Isn't that the way it works? Isn't that the second law of thermodynamics? (laughs) Uh, Law of decay? I mean, when you think about the kind of world that we live in, you, you... there's threats on all sides. I mean, there's threats from uh, there's threats from people, personal relationships, threats from governments, uh, there's threats from nature. I mean, you're you're getting older and older every day. Uh, the longer you live, the closer you are to death. Right. I mean, when you think about it, um, uh, if if everything goes just as planned, you might you might get eighty or so years. Who knows? Uh, but then. There are significant uh, diseases, illnesses. Uh, you know, we don't often know all the effects of technology. I mean, technology has benefited us in some very remarkable ways, uh, but we don't. I think, in many ways, we, we're, we're in over our heads. We don't know all the effects of every, that everything's going to have on us. Um, you know, cars are a wonderful thing, but they cause a lot of death, don't they? Maybe we should ban them. Because. Uh, but the reality is, in order to be spiritually stable, you have to do something with that information. You live in a world that is trying to kill you. Uh, you know, you interact with people enough, you're going to have a lot of unpleasant things happening, uh, and 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 so you're going to have to have you're going to have to do something with that. So either you adopt a stance which basically says, like, I'm a victim of. The actions of other people, and you you own that as some sort of identity, which is going to uh, stay with you for the scope of your life. I'm a victim of whatever sin it is, and so uh, sometimes we you know we single out certain particular sins as being more grievous to us than others, and we uh, perceive ourselves as being victims of these particular sins. And so let's say that you didn't you grew up and you didn't have the best parents in the world. Well, you can. You have a choice to make, right? You can. You can for the rest of your life. You can say, "Hey, I'm a victim of my parents' poor choices and my parents' poor uh, parenting," and you can feel like, like you're lacking something that's fundamentally necessary for you to be uh, emotionally stable and you know psychologically healthy, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you know, you can do that with certain things that you feel like you're lacking. Typically, you do that with the kind of things that. Um, uh, other people were doing against you. Uh, But whatever it is, you know, single out whatever kind of sin that you have and you can present yourself as a victim. Um, But then, you know, is that the path that the Bible puts forward for us? That's the question. Is that the path the Bible puts forward for us? Or does the Bible put forward a fundamentally different path? I mean, think about what it means to be spiritually stable. How do you do it? How do you do it? How do you be spiritually stable in a world that... Uh, It's messed up and full of problems. How do you do it? Well, you can take the path that society is taking, but I don't think that that path is really helping anything. Uh, Or you can take the path that God is is, uh, assigned to us in the scriptures. How do you do that? Well, how do we overcome living in a fallen world like this? How do we do it? How do we overcome? What does Revelation say? You overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of his testimony, right? What does that mean? How do we overcome the world by the blood of his lamb, by the blood of the lamb and the word of his testimony, word of Jesus testimony? Well, it doesn't mean that, you know, when uh, the mean employer won't give you the job, you just uh, you claim the blood of Jesus or you, you you know, uh, sprinkle the blood of Jesus uh, on on the man and and claim dominion over the job in the name of the Lord. I mean, uh, the issue is not that the issue is that how do you overcome the world Well, you see yourself and you see the world? through the lens of the gospel. And what what does that look like? What does that look like to do that? Well, it looks like saying, I'm a sinner, doesn't it? I'm a sinner. I deserve death. I've sinned against the Holy God. I've sinned against my maker. I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve to be treated fairly. I don't deserve to be treated in a way that I desire to be treated. Uh, I don't deserve to have everything happen exactly the way I want it to happen. Uh, If Jesus didn't even have a a home, I think I've gotten a lot more than I deserve, right? And so when you think about the, the way in which you conquer in the world, the only way to conquer in the world and to be spiritually stable and not to be pushed around emotionally by every single thing that happens to you in your life is to realize that everything that I receive is a gift of God that I don't reserve, that I don't deserve. And the only path forward towards stability is to see my own personal sins as far more grievous than anyone else's sins against me. And if you live like that, and if you actually believe that, you're going to be stable because you're going to have the right kind of expectations in your life. Uh, That's the point. You're going to have the kind of expectations uh, that are not constantly saying, every time something happens that you don't like, why me and I don't deserve this and I can't believe you would do this other person or God, I can't believe that you would do this. You're going to be having the kind of uh, mental dialogue that says, I... You know, Whatever it is that's happening to me is not fundamentally the same as what happened to Jesus. And yet I often have many more blessings than Jesus even did while he was here on the earth. And if you have that kind of perspective, you will be stable. Uh, The second part of that would be in order to live lives that honor the Lord, a person must uh, reject the pervasive victimology which currently characterizes Western society. Why do I say in order to live lives that honor the Lord? need to reject this pervasive victimology. Why do I say that? What kind of person was Jesus? He's the kind of person, even in his crucifixion, who's silent before his shears. He's not the kind of person who is uh, loudly demanding his rights to uh, fair treatment. He's the kind of person who gives us the Sermon on the Mount, which says a person, uh, you you know, you basically give up your rights to dignity. If a person. slaps you on your uh, right side of your cheek, you turn the other cheek also. What does that mean? It means give up your right to dignity, uh, be willing to be embarrassed. You don't have to uh, get in a fight and uh, uh, noisy conflict over uh, someone publicly shaming you. It's not the kind of thing if someone stabs you on the right side of your face, you turn to them the other side of your face also. It's about shame. Uh, if a person wants to sue you and take your uh, your tunic, you give them your shirt also. That's the point. So you, you give up this this, this fundamental right you have to uh, personal property, if this is that important to you, you can have it uh, you know it 's God will provide for me, and God will take care of uh, me i don 't have to be the kind of person who is fundamentally uh, looking at myself and viewing myself as some kind of victim that I need to right all the wrongs and fix all the oppression and, 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 and uh, right all the societal injustices no. In order to honor the Lord, what do we have to do? We have to be like him. And what kind of person was Jesus? Was he, a, was he the kind of person that at all points and times, in, in the scope of his uh, experience, do you see examples of him that, that will tell you that he's fussing and complaining all day long about all the many ways in which people are mistreating him and misunderstanding him and disrespecting him and not uh, loving him the way that he wants to love? Did he write a book about his love languages and give you that book and tell you these are the ways that I am going to. I want to be loved in order for me to want to go to the cross for you. And so you better get your stuff together and love me the way that I, 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 that makes me feel loved so that my love cup will be full so that I'll go to the cross to you. No, the issue is that in order to honor the Lord, we have to be like the Lord. And that's what it means to pursue sanctification. It means when we're pursuing sanctification, what are we doing? We, we are trying to be more like Christ. What kind of person is Christ like? He's the only true victim who's ever lived in the history of the world, and he wasn't the kind of person who was fundamentally crippled and paralyzed by that reality. He isn't fundamentally crippled and paralyzed by the reality that people treated him poorly, and he didn't like it, and he didn't go around complaining about it, the whole scope of his ministry. Finally, in order to have healthy relationships, a person must reject the pervasive victimology which currently characterizes Western societies. Why do, why do you say that? In order to have healthy relationships, a person must reject the pervasive victimology which currently characterizes societies. I would say, you know, having a good relationship is not really complicated, it's hard. <laughs> it's hard, it's not complicated, it's not rocket science. You, you know, what do you have to have in order to have? Good healthy relationships, whether at church, whether at home, um, in society at large. What do you have to do? What what is the key to having healthy relationships? That's what the Bible tells us to do, isn't it? No one can be my disciple unless what deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. What does that mean? Deny yourself. That means Christ loved the church. What did he do? What are we learning about in this passage? Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. Isn't that what the cross is about? Christ loved the church, gave himself up for the church, uh, that he might present the church uh, uh, spotless and blameless before him. What is it? What, what does it take to have healthy relationships? Doesn't it, doesn't it kind of take two people who get over themselves and learn to love each other more than they love themselves? Like if you really had two people who just said, I love you more than I love me, and I'm going to devote my life to trying to figure out what you like and do that for you. And if you had both people who are doing that and persisting in that, and not just doing it so long as they perceive it to work, right? So not just doing it, uh, I'm going to do that, but you better pull your weight, right? And if you don't, then I'm going to hold back and I'm going to wait and figure out what you're going to do. No, but if you have two people who are absolutely committed to that sort of thing, we're gonna, I'm going I'm to love you more than I love yourself. I'm going to figure out all the ways in which I can serve you. And we're both going to love God more than we love each other. So his priorities come first. So, you know, you, you have that kind of thing happening. What happens? What do you have? It's kind of hard to imagine a whole lot of fights if you have two people who are, you know, dead set on trying to put the other first and put God before both of them, Right. So, I mean, like the formula isn't hard, and that's the point. The formula is not hard. The, the issue is not a difficult – I mean, it's not complicated. It's just incredibly difficult. Why? Because we're sinful. Well, that's the point. But then if you're going to have really healthy relationships, I mean, what are they going to look like? Well, they can't be the kind of relationships where you see yourself as being this person who is fundamentally uh, deserving of fair treatment at all points in time. I mean, if that's the way you see yourself, you see yourself as this person who has all these inalienable rights that you demand from other people, Uh, regardless of whether or not, like from God's perspective, you actually have those rights. The point is just to say that you can be a person who loudly just uh, makes the whole scope of your conversation with another person, trying to convince them about how you deserve to be treated and and how uh, their actions uh, cause you intense emotional pain and suffering and and, and how uh, until they learn to get their stuff together, you're not going to be able to uh, feel towards them the way that you ought, to, you ought to feel towards them and love them the way that you ought to love them. Uh, it, you know, you can be that kind of way, but then the problem is what if they're that way too? What do you have? Stalemate, right? I mean, You have two people trying to uh, figure out how to manipulate the other person in, in, in order to get what they really want from them. Well, at a certain point, you you have to say, well, you first, right? Well, then what typically happens with marriage problems? You first. Well, I will when you do. Uh, All right, let's try it. You try it for a little bit. You're not holding up your end of the bargain, right? I'm I'm getting discouraged with this kind of thing, and I don't want to keep on going if that's the way it's going to be. But that's what's happening intuitively. In order to have healthy relationships, you have to – the only way that you can have a healthy relationship – I mean, you you know, you can come to some sort of arrangement where, you know, you have a marriage that's built on some kind of compromise where I get my way half the time and you get your way half the time. And maybe that works for some people like, hey, you know, you give me my way half the time and I'll feel good. But whatever that is, it's not selfless love, is it? It's just an arrangement that works out that facilitates mutual selfishness, really, is what it is. But in order to have the kind of relationships God wants, we have to reject this pervasive uh, victimology. We have to we have to know and understand that it's possible to love people like Jesus loved them and to do uh, for people what Jesus did. And so the only way you're going to do that is you're going to understand that Jesus is the only true victim in the history of the world. And anything that's unpleasant that happens to me is, is uh, you know, I deserve far worse than this. And the only way you can go forward is is to say, Uh, God has given me so many blessings, which I ought to be thankful for, which ought to overshadow any of these silly little uh, desires and wants that seem so important to me. Uh, Finally, final implication here, in order to understand the world, live wise lives, and avoid unnecessary problems, we must be able to make the basic moral distinctions and distinguish between different levels of culpability. So I think... As you're reflecting on the murder of Jesus, we ought to be able to make moral distinctions. Uh, We ought to be able to understand uh, uh, different categories of culpability or blame, responsibility. Um, And and if we're unable to do this, we really aren't going to be able to... The point is going to be if we're not able to make distinctions between various uh, heinous acts like you find uh, present in the death of Jesus on the cross, you're really not going to be able to... Understand the world you live in. You're not going to be able to live, live wise lives, and you, 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 you will experience many unnecessary problems. And so let's deal with the first. In order to understand the world, we must be able to make basic moral distinctions and distinguish between uh, different levels of culpability or responsibility or uh, blameworthiness. So in order to understand the world, you're going to have to be able to make um, the kind of moral distinctions that I put forward in the opening of, of the sermon today. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean that in order to understand the world you're going to be able to have to, you're gonna have to make basic moral distinctions? Well, we, we do live in a world, you have to understand this. We live in a world and you look at society and you reflect on the kind of things that are happening. We, we live in the kind of world that really does consider shame to be an enemy. Okay, so we're moral creatures. Why do we experience shame? Why do we experience shame? Because we have the moral God, law of God written on our heart. Uh, so uh, we are people who enter the world objectively guilty. And we have God's moral law written on our heart. And no matter how hard we try, we can't escape this sense of shame uh, that uh, seeps into our very being. And so people, people really try hard to... Figure out how to fix this shame that we experience, uh, but then you know if you look at the world and you try to understand what's happening, you know why does this celebrity who seems to have everything that the world has to offer, why do they uh, give up in despair and kill themselves? You know why does Tom Brady in a football uh, Super Bowl uh, interview uh, describe the experience of winning the Super Bowl and describe it as fundamentally empty and not what he thought it would be? You know why does that kind of thing happen? Uh, why you know wh- wh- why why do you have atheists who are very outspoken, kind of atheists who are so angry and dead set on trying to convince you that the God you believe in and worship and serve is simply a figment of your imagination, a um, magical leprechaun um, hiding in a pot of gold behind the rainbow or something along those lines? Why are they so? Dad sat on trying to convince you. When Christopher Hitchens died, he's an atheist uh, who was a very public and vocal atheist. Why, why did he go to such great lengths to uh, chronicle the persistence of his unbelief even to the moment of death? Why is he doing these sorts of things? Why, are, why, why, why when you see the kind of uh, sexually deviant members of our society, why is there such uh, pressure put on you to try to affirm their pronouns, and try to affirm, uh, you know, that their uh, marriages, which aren't marriages, are really marriages. Why? Why do they put legal pressure on you to celebrate those kind of things? Why do they go after the florist and try to? Uh, why do they go after the florist and try to make the florist um, uh, or the bakers? Um, participate in their unholy unions why why is that happening just because we have a moral law written on our heart we have guilt we're trying to do whatever we can to get rid of the guilt we feel guilt we feel shame Uh, and if you're a person who is agreeing with what we feel internally if you're a person who's saying that the the shame and the guilt that i feel internally is justified you're the enemy right because what am i trying to do i'm trying to do the best i can to get rid of the shame aren't i so now when you think about you know, the way this kind of works, we live in a society that, that really wants to categorize people in very simple ways. So this is a victim and this is a villain. So once you get the victim status, then all the blame for all of your actions gets chucked out the door, right? And so that's the way these things work. And so... Um, You can look at news reports, uh, and you can see examples after example after example of the kind of phenomenon that uh, I'm observing. Once you are viewed as an oppressed class of individuals, then it seems to me that all of your actions seem to be swept under the rug, um, and you cannot be held responsible for anything that you do. Now, uh, what I want to say is that there is truly injustice in the world, isn't there? But just because there's injustice in the world doesn't mean that a person who experiences injustice gets a blank slate for the rest of their life to act uh, however they want to act. And just because there's injustice in the world that might be real, and it might be at times systemic, doesn't mean that we can't make foolish and sinful choices that uh, That contribute to others sins and crimes against us, right, and so if you want to understand the kind of world that you live in, you have to realize that we are moral beings who are created in the image of God, who are going to be able to do, going to have to give an account for all of our actions. Uh, we are the kind of people who are going to stand before God and, and are going to have to explain ourselves to some degree and If we attempt in doing so to stand on our own righteousness, we are going to Uh, be uh, sadly, uh, sadly uh, shocked uh, when Jesus doesn't seem to accept the same kind of excuses that we make. But we live in a society, you have to understand, uh, you see this in society, you might see this in your own kind of relationships. We live in a society that isn't able to make moral distinctions between a variety of actions. And so uh, when a person oppresses you or victimizes you, or uh, treat you wrong, you may think personally that you have license to do whatever it is that you want to do at that point, uh, but then that kind of logic does not hold up before the God who made you. Uh, But the point here is just to say in order to understand the world, we, we, we are going to have to make basic moral distinctions which seem to come so foreign to us, Uh, At times, and so, uh, second second feature of this: in order to live wise lives, we must be able to make uh, basic moral distinctions and distinguish between different levels of culpability. In order to live wise lives, we must be able to make basic moral distinctions and distinguish between different levels of culpability. I, I gave you some examples at the beginning. What do you think about the kid who snuck out of his home? Parents told him not to do it. Don't go to this area of town. Don't be friends with these individuals. Don't do this kind of thing. He sneaks out of the house. At the uh, he, he sneaks out of the house despite what they've told him, despite their warnings. And he uh, goes to a bad place. Uh, he's at the wrong place at the wrong time, ends up getting shot. What, what do you think about that kind of thing? Was it his fault he got shot? He didn't ask for it, did he? Did he deserve to get shot? Well, it's complicated maybe, right? I mean, in a certain sense, um, uh, from God's perspective, we all deserve death at every single point in time. But uh, from a human perspective, it's certainly walking at a certain place in time isn't really uh, licensed to get shot, is it? Uh, At the same time, was it a foolish and unwise choice that he experienced terrible consequences for? Sure. What do you do with that, though? What do you do with that as a parent? What do you do with that as members of a society? Well, you can view them as just an unequivocal victim. And if you do that, what happens? What's the problem with viewing him as an unequivocal victim? Other people don't learn from it, right? I mean, what do you do as a parent looking in on that from the outside? I think what you say is, if you make that kind of choices, that might happen to you, and you need to understand that you are responsible for the decisions that you make. And if you make foolish choices, you may experience tragic consequences, and those consequences don't aren't justified. They're not justified by your actions, but you ought to learn from that, right, and pursue a wise life. And so if we can't have a dialogue that enables us to speak about these sorts of things, uh, you know, we're not going to be able to live wise lives. So when you think about the actions of Jesus, that kind of calculus doesn't really work, does it? I mean, everything he does is right. Because we're sinful human beings, uh, you know, we have to understand that all of our actions are, ref- are affect other people in a wide variety of ways. And and so, you, you know, you, you were either contributing... Uh, to sin, or you're resisting sin at every different points in times, and sometimes you're doing the same thing with uh, the same different act. And so I can think about many, many situations in my life where I've made decisions that had good motives and bad motives, and you know, um, and who knows how to, who knows how to connect the dots and, and assign the blame in all the right sort of way. But but there is an intuitive awareness in my life that I can't just look at life in a simplistic way and just paint myself as a hundred percent victim, a hundred percent villain in almost any of the circumstances that I've ever been in in my life. Uh, There have been times when I've experienced genuine persecution, but even the times when I've experienced genuine, outright, hostile persecution, there's always within me been an awareness that I'm a sinful person and I may be contributing to this in certain ways uh, and it would help me to think through some of those ways that I might be communicating, uh, contributing to uh, the negative outcome in order that I might learn and live a, live a wiser life in the future. And so that's part of why we have to think about the difference between Jesus' death on the cross and our own lives. Uh, you know, if you, you want to live a wise life, you're going to have to learn from your mistakes. <laughs> And, you're going, and, and in learning from your mistakes, one of the things that you're going to realize is that the world has a way of resisting simple categorization uh, more often than not. Uh, finally, in order to avoid unnecessary problems, must be able to make basic moral distinctions, distinguish between different levels of culpability. And so I think in, in, you know, as we're thinking about this kind of subject in general… Uh, it, it is important to realize that, you know, God is sovereign over all of the affairs of man and all of the details of our lives. And at the same time, we are encouraged to to make wise choices and to honor the Lord. And we uh, we do understand that there are the types of problems that can happen in our life. Uh, that uh, God will allow, and God is obviously sovereignly and in, in control of, but there are the type of problems that can happen in our life that are the result of foolish, wise, unwise, and sinful choices, right? What does the Bible say? The way of the transgression is hard. What does that mean? Well, you know, there's pleasure that's associated with sin at times. There's uh, fleeting pleasures of sin, uh, but but, you know, there's... The, the, the path of rebellion isn't the path of peace, is it? And, and there are many actions that we can take, many decisions that we can make that may affect us for the uh, scope of our life. And we can harden our hearts to the knowledge of uh, the general sowing and reaping principles that God has worked within the uh, scope of how the world works. You know, what a man sows, he will reap. We can harden our heart to this truth. And we may find that we're making the same Foolish, sinful choice over and over and over again. And and people are responding by taking advantage of us over and over and over again. And at a certain point, you may say, don't put yourself in that kind of situation, right? You need to learn from what happened in the past. At a certain point, if you keep on putting yourself You know, son, you keep on hanging out with those friends. What do you think is going to happen? Right. You keep on going to that place. One day it's going to end bad. You need to wake up. Right. And you keep on doing it over and over and over again. What do you think is going to happen at a certain point? Like, you know, you're going to going to get an outcome that you might not desire. And is that your fault? In some sense, you ought to have known better. If you choose, a, you choose a foolish path, you, you will get foolish results. And so uh, the point here is just to say, despite the fact that it's unpopular, we need to be able to make basic moral distinctions and distinguish between different levels of culpability. Now, um, there's much more that can be said about this passage, and I'm sure that we will attempt to say it, um, but I will say that, uh, when we reflect on the death of Jesus on the cross for us, we do have an example—an example, uh, an example of, of of a person who is a true victim, in every sense of the word, who in no way deserved anything that happens happened to him. And when we think about ourselves in contrast to the life of Jesus, we ought to realize, we ought to soberly reflect on the fact that that. That my sin has vast consequences on the lives of not only my own life, but on the lives of many other people. So when I think about myself, if I am to see myself the way the Bible sees me, one of the things I need to realize is that who am I? Am I a victim or a villain? I'm both, aren't I? I'm horrified at the thought of many of the sins that I've committed against many people. And, and, and I've seen the damage that my sin has caused against many people over the course of my life. I'm not an innocent person. And, and, and I've seen the impact that other sin has had on my life. And we're all connected, and we're all tangled together. And if you interact with someone enough, one of the things you're going to realize is that we don't sin in a vacuum. Sin doesn't happen in a vacuum. We sin against other people, and they sin against us. And whose is worse? Who knows? Who knows which is worse? I don't know. You can spend your life trying to figure out what the math is, right? Right? You can try to, you know, in your relationships, you can try to figure out what the math is. Well, I think I've sinned against them 21% of the time, and, you know, the 79% of the time is them. You can try to do that if you want to, um, but whoever knows? Like, no one knows. The point is just to say that if we are going to be gospel people, the only way to be gospel people is to see Jesus as being a, a true victim uh, in every sense of the word and to understand that You know, when I look at myself and I look at my life, I'm a victim and a villain. And and it's only from that posture where true freedom is found, isn't it? I guess only after I kind of accept that about myself that I'm freed up to accept the mercy of God and to love other people without an agenda that is driving it. It's only when I come to see that, you know, whatever it is that I've done against but uh, whatever it is that other people have done against me, I've done against God far worse. And I probably, you know, probably sinned against them a lot worse than I know that they've sinned against me. Uh, you know, if we stop for a moment and then think about it, and the, the fact is that I have access to my thoughts all day long, and my thoughts aren't always that good. And, and, and I don't have access to the thoughts of other people. But uh, the, the issue here is just to say that in order to be gospel people – And in order to overcome, uh, we have to look at our lives and contrast them with the life of Jesus, which is ultimately culminating in his violent and sacrificial death on behalf of me. And that's that's really the only path to salvation, uh, spiritual stability, and honoring the Lord, and having uh, God-honoring relationships in general. But let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. For the opportunity that we do have to think through your scriptures and to think through these things, Lord, we thank you uh, for. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic. When I can, I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere.